provided for us, and we gladly offer back to you just a portion of what you have given. Take this, this morning we pray, and use it for the furthering of your kingdom, to the glorifying of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Our text this morning is Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, It's been a couple of years since I've had an opportunity to visit with you. Um, I love that psalm. It's beautiful. It's really best when sung, but I decided to spare you my singing voice and simply read the text. I'd like to start by sharing a story about St. Dominic, which dates back to the 11th century. And uh, as the story goes, Dominic was preaching a sermon in a cathedral, but he had one big problem, which is that There were a bunch of sparrows that had made their home in the cathedral, and they were making a racket, and he couldn't make himself heard. Of course, he didn't have the advantage that I have of microphones. He couldn't make himself heard to those who were in the cathedral over the noise of this flock of sparrows. And so he directed one of the nuns to fetch him one of the sparrows, which she did, And he took it in his hand, and as the story goes, he plucked its feathers out one at a time until it had none left, and then he threw it aside and said, you wretch, you rogue, enemy of mankind, fly now if you can. There are two lessons from this story. The first is that sparrows don't get much love. And the second is that there's a big difference between St. Dominic and St. Francis. And while I'm sure there's a sermon to be had on comparing and contrasting Dominic and Francis, that's for another day. Today I'd like to look at what scripture says about unlovable sparrows. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, be not anxious. I've always thought that was one of the most curious commandments 
because it's impossible, right? I mean, who among us doesn't struggle with anxiety sometimes? So what does he mean? Well, when we read something in scripture that's not immediately clear, one of the best things we can do is to keep reading and to let scripture explain and interpret itself. And the very next verse, not nearly as well known, says, consider the birds of the air. And the question I'd like to ask this morning is, what if Jesus actually meant what he said? In other words, what if he actually meant for us to meditate on the birds of his creation. You know, we have a tendency to move very quickly toward the end of that chapter. Seek first the kingdom of God. But right in between, be not anxious and seek first the kingdom of God is this line about considering the birds of the air. Scripture says a lot about animals, and the references to them are not interchangeable. So, for example, in Proverbs we read, go to the ant and consider her ways and be wise. And this is directed at somebody who is struggling with laziness or slothfulness. In the context of this passage on anxiety, in Matthew, however, Jesus does not say, go to the ant of the anthill or go to the beaver of the swamp. Why? Because hard work is not an antidote to anxiety. In Matthew 6, Jesus is making a particular point about provision. And because they do not stockpile, birds illustrate the point. Birds have no barns. They have no savings accounts, so to speak. And so they lead lives of radical dependency on God's continual provision. In that sense, they're kind of like the Israelites who are dependent upon manna from heaven, or they're like the one who prays, give us this day our daily bread. And of course, scripture speaks not only about birds in general, but of different kinds of birds, of pigeons and pelicans, eagles and vultures, cocks and ravens, and sparrows. A few chapters after we're instructed to consider the birds of the air in Matthew 6, we read this. Have no fear, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And then in Luke, we read, five sparrows can be had for two pennies. In other words, buy five, get one free. Why sparrows at this particular moment in time? Why is this not a moment for majestic eagles? After all, At first read, it seems like God is saying something like, well, sparrows are almost utterly worthless, and you're at least worth a little more than they are. Which seems like rather faint praise, doesn't it? That's probably not what it means. See, Jesus is making a particular point, and in this context, the point is about God's sovereignty and loving care, And sparrows illustrate the point precisely because they are worthless, worth mere pennies, utterly unloved. Let's just take a little 
uh, excursion of sorts for a moment and talk about sparrows. For starters, we should note that when scripture speaks about sparrows, it's not referring to song sparrows. Song sparrows are relatively likable birds that are native to the new world. Scripture is speaking of old world sparrows, or what most of us know as house sparrows, one subspecies of which is actually named Passer domesticus biblicus. In North America, house sparrows are an invasive species that first came over in the 1850s, and to say that they proved adaptive would be a gross understatement. They quickly conquered the continent, and the more populous they became, the more unpopular they became. Within decades, they were as hated as any species on this continent. New York actually made it a misdemeanor to feed, shelter, or protect sparrows. Michigan paid a bounty of one cent per dead bird. And so it went across the American continent. And not only in America, in 18th century England, they had sparrow clubs that were formed with the express purpose of killing as many sparrows as possible. And many sparrows made it into sparrow pie, which was a popular dish across the countryside. In Russia, you could get your taxes lowered by bringing in heads of dead sparrows. And in China, Mao Zedong led a campaign to eradicate sparrows. 200,000 were killed on the first day, and all told, millions were killed. And it's not just across geographic space, it's across time and history. You can go back to ancient times. In ancient cuneiform, the sparrow was the symbol for enemy. And all of this, of course, is to say nothing of St. Dominic. Well, the point I hope and trust is clear. Sparrows don't get much love. They're the one bird that even birders are allowed to dislike. One bird book describes sparrows as a nuisance so untidy as to be eyesores and damagers of crops as well as despoilers of crocus flowers. And this comes from a book entitled The Charm of Birds. (laughs) Well, this excursion may seem a little bit far afield from biblical exegesis, but Just remember, it was Jesus, not me, who said, consider the birds of the air. So what do we take from all of this? In short, I would suggest that sparrows are us. Not in every respect, perhaps, but in important respects nonetheless. So, for example, first, sparrows are prolific, which calls attention to just how extraordinary it is that God can say he doesn't so much as lose track of even one of them. Think about that. My wife Julie and I have five children, and we can't keep track of them. We even left one of them at church one day. Five, five kids. You think we could keep track of them? God doesn't lose track of a sparrow. Stunning. Second, sparrows are relentlessly social creatures. Psalm 102 speaks of being like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. You see, they don't like to be alone. Now, I know there's a couple of introverts who are thinking that actually sounds like a pretty good idea, being alone up on top of a housetop. But we are irreducibly social animals and social creatures, just like they are. Third, house sparrows are by nature untidy. In a book entitled An Eye on the Sparrow, 
The author says that you know a sparrow is in your bird box when pieces of string and grass and strips of paper and plastic are dangling out the door. And for any of you who have had children and tried to encourage them to keep their rooms clean, that could pretty much be a description of many of their rooms, couldn't it? And yet there's one more reason we tend to dislike sparrows, and it's this. They make good scapegoats. If you look a little bit more closely at what we might call the anatomy of disgust with sparrows, we find that the stated reasons people dislike them actually varies across time and place. So, for example, if you lived in post-Reformation Europe or America, you would likely have worried about the influence of sparrows' lustiness. Puritans believed that witches transformed themselves into house sparrows in order to fulfill their immoral drives. And a Lutheran clergyman of the same era lobbied his German magistrates to exterminate sparrows because he said their promiscuity was distracting his congregation from his sermons. If you lived in mid-19th century America, you would likely have agreed with the sentiment that the sparrow, as one source put it at the time, was a foreigner that competes unfairly with native birds, has an immoral character, and needs to be eliminated from the American community of birds, a sentiment that coincided not coincidentally with concerns regarding new waves of immigration. And if you were a 21st century environmentally correct parent of children trying to raise them with a love of the outdoors, you may have built bluebird boxes in a place like New York, that's our state bird, only to find that the boxes are much more likely to be claimed by a sparrow than by a cute, pretty little eastern bluebird. All of which is to say that we dislike sparrows not only because they're prolific, noisy, and untidy, but also because they're easy to blame for our own frustrations and failures. And we do this to other people also all the time, don't we? We fail a test and blame the teacher. We suffer depression and blame our parents. We feel frantic and harried and blame technology. To be a sparrow is to be unloved. And this is where the biblical teaching on sparrows cuts to the chase of the human condition. One of the great Bible teachers of the last century was the uh, Anglican clergyman John Stott. He wrote a book. One of his many books is entitled The Birds, Our Teachers, Biblical Lessons from a Lifelong Bird Watcher. And in that book, he wrote this. The paradox of our humanness is that we are the products both of creation and the fall. While some people have an inflated view of their own importance, many more feel unwanted and unloved and consider themselves to be worthless. Worthlessness. That's the topic of the biblical teaching on sparrows. Now, if it happens to be the case that you struggle more with self-importance than self-esteem, there are other passages of scripture that are more pertinent to that particular struggle. I would suggest reading the uh, book of Job, and seeing how it is that God renders his accusers. But let me ask you this. Do you struggle sometimes with feeling worthless? Do you struggle sometimes with feeling unlovable? Do not fear. Most of us do. And more importantly, 
This message, the biblical teaching on sparrows, is for you. One of the most crucial elements in human maturity, Stott writes, is the development of a proper self-esteem. And there's only one way to develop it. It's not through success. It's not even through hard work. And it's certainly not through having thousands of friends and followers on social media. The only way to develop a true sense of self-worth, he says, is to come to recognize our value to God. Jesus talks about sparrows precisely to address this, precisely to say God loves not just was extraordinary and successful and historically significant, but God loves what is common. God loves what is ordinary. God loves even what is unlovable. Why do we suffer anxiety? We're anxious because we want assurances about the future that we cannot have. God gives him himself, but we want more. We want Jesus and success. We want Jesus and a family. We want Jesus and good health. But he promises none of these things. Recall, Jesus illustrates God's sovereignty by saying he remembers the sparrow even while the sparrow is falling to its death. Several years ago, our former pastor and his wife lost their son to an accidental fall. And at the memorial service, he asked this question. He said, where was Jesus when my son was falling to his death? And he gave the answer that I can only hope I would be able to give. He said, he was right there with him. That's faith. That is contentment in Christ. Why do we scapegoat? Why do we blame others for our problems? We blame others because the truth about our own sin and our own complicity in the problems around us is too great for us to bear. But God has provided a better scapegoat. He has provided his son. He's taken the blame for sin. So we no longer have to blame others or even ourselves. All of which brings us to our text and our conclusion. In Psalm 84, the psalmist is celebrating his pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping at God's own dwelling place. How lovely is this place? My soul longs and faints for this place. A day here is better than a thousand elsewhere. What is this place? Well, in the context of the psalm, God's dwelling place is the sanctuary of the temple. Now, this was not a place that people lived. People did not dwell there. It was not even primarily a place for people to gather like a church. It was God's dwelling place. So you can imagine that just visiting as a guest in God's own house must have been a staggering privilege. I don't know if the psalmist was fearful, but I would have been. Who am I to enter the very house of God? And yet, upon entering, who does the psalmist find has already taken up residence? Not just as a visitor, but actually dwelling in the very dwelling place of God. It's not hardworking ants. It's not 
majestic eagles. It's just little, old, unlovable Mr. and Mrs. Sparrow. For the psalmist, discovering that even the sparrow finds a home at your altars had to be the greatest of reassurances that he too would find hospitality in the house of God. For you and for me, this discovery of sparrows in the temple means even more because we can anticipate the new Jerusalem when God's presence will permeate the new heavens and the new earth. And not only do we anticipate a future in which God's presence is everywhere, but we can taste it even now. For the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, says the psalmist in Psalm 84, which reminds us of the more familiar Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, with the emphasis on the word dwell. But where's the house of the Lord now? We don't have the temple. Now, today, the house of the Lord is no longer limited to a physical place. The spirit of Christ dwells with his people. If you were to write a book about God, what would the first sentence be? What image, what metaphor would you want to conjure up to communicate to your reader the incredible reality of God's grace? Well, one theologian, a guy named James Torrance, wrote a book, Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace. And in the very first sentence of his book, he says, God made all creatures for his glory, including the sparrow. Why do you believe in Christianity? There are lots of good reasons to believe. But one reason is that there are sparrows in the temple. It's just too ironic, too congruous, too funny, if you will, for any man-made religion. Who ever heard of a god like this? This image of unattractive, untidy, and unappreciated birds taking up residence in the very residence of God, this should serve as the greatest antidote to anxiety in all the world. Fear not, for God is not St. Dominic writ large. He does not pluck out our feathers and toss us aside. Jesus says, be not anxious. And in fact, the God who welcomes untidy sparrows into his holy temple to build a nest is the same God who wants to deliver you from anxiety to deep existential rest. Amen. And if you look on the order of service, we uh, I believe the worship team is coming forward to lead us in now thank we all our God, which is number 98 in the hymnal.